So we have been in this conversation the last few weeks looking at these psalms, this this songbook that is in the middle of our Bibles. And what we've been seeing is that is that they are songs. They have uh, everything in common uh, that we would expect to see in songs. The only thing that's missing is the music. If you open up your Bible, you will not find the music. And that's a good thing because we're not stuck with 3,000-year-old songs. People don't even like 30-year-old songs. They certainly wouldn't want uh, 3,000-year-old songs. So uh, each culture, each generation gets to translate the songs into what appeals to their ears. So that's a good thing. But the poems... The, the poems that were set to music, they remain. And in fact, one of the providential things about the Psalms is that God picked a language that, that Luke Jones doesn't personally care for that much, but makes it very easy to translate uh, a poem from, from that language, the language of Hebrew, to any other language, because the structure is all that matters, the repetition that we see in the poems. And uh, the reason for these Psalms, the reason that there is this songbook in the middle of the Bible is so that these songs can get stuck in our heads. Because there are things where we want to have the right words to say. We want to know what to say about God or to God. And the Psalms give us those words. The Psalms give us the things to say. And the reason they do that is because they're stuck in our heads. They are like most songs. They can stick like any other song. And what we saw last week is that one of the one of the things one of the one of the categories of songs that we see in the psalms is the psalms of praise and the reason for that is because whether whether you're a natural optimist or whether you're kind of pessimistic that praising God is a means of expanding your own capacity for joy so so the more we praise God the more we have the capacity to experience the joy of the Lord but what we're going to talk about today is what happens kind of on the other end of that scale when the circumstances of our life are overwhelming, whether whether we're naturally praiseful, whether we're naturally optimistic and we always see the glass half full, or whether whether we are uh, kind of negative and, you know, kind of an Eeyore instead of a Pollyanna, we normally see the glass as half empty. Um, it doesn't matter which kind of person we are because the circumstances themselves are so overwhelming. I don't know... Um, what what your experience is i don't know how 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 many times you felt overwhelmed i love that word by the way overwhelmed um you know there's there's only two words there's overwhelmed and underwhelmed but we never hear about whelmed so i actually looked up what what is whelmed um just in case you know it would totally undercut everything i was going to tell you but i i looked it up and i found out that uh, whelmed is an is an archaic word and it means a surge or a flood, so we might say flooded. You know, the Mississippi Valley was flooded, or it was it was whelmed. Um, and apparently, the only place it's used at all today is in some different boating circles. There are there's language where where the waves are coming right up to the gunnels of your boat. That's called whelmed. And when the water is sloshing over into the boat, that's overwhelmed, and it's a bad thing. So normally, I guess as a boater, you want to be underwhelmed. So. Um, so you want underwhelming boating experiences. So, uh, um, and, and I think I think for most of us, we can relate one way or the other to to the idea of being overwhelmed. Um, you know, sometimes it's because the event is just catastrophic. It's something that that we were not prepared for, and anybody 
anybody would have been overwhelmed by it. Maybe it's something, you know, your 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 spouse quits their job because they're going to look for a new thing or something, and that's when your company announces layoffs. Or or maybe you made a big a financial commitment, you're going to pay for a house or something, and you you get you get laid off. Um, maybe it's something that would overwhelm anybody. Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe you spent the night in the ER and you're just kind of overwhelmed by that and you're, you're not going to be in a place where you can praise God. Um, maybe, maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe a relationship is coming apart. Maybe your marriage is coming apart and you're overwhelmed by that. Maybe it's some other kind of tragedy. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that are overwhelming and they would overwhelm anybody no matter what their circumstances were. But, but there's also that kind of the difference between whelm and overwhelm where where some event is is kind of the the final straw it's it's that you realize you had so little margin in your life that the thing that overwhelmed you was really a small thing and you feel silly even talking about it um because it wasn't the big deal it was just you had no margin in your life and so you were you realize in in hindsight that you were already whelmed and this small thing overwhelmed you and so I think a lot of us, that's where we experience it. We come home from work and um, we, we were ready to settle in and, you know, kind of binge watch Netflix or whatever we do. And instead we find out, oh, there's this thing you have to do. There's a, you got to go out tonight. And it's like just too much for us. And it's not even a big deal, but it is a big deal because it's the, it's the final straw. It's what, what overwhelms us. And if you've ever felt that way, either the big events, the, the things that would overwhelm anybody, no matter what had previously been the case, or or the small thing that was kind of the final straw, if you've ever been overwhelmed, the psalmist has something to teach us today. The psalmist tells us how we can deal with that situation of being overwhelmed, because we're not going to praise. We're, we're not going to praise because the circumstance is simply overwhelming. So the psalmist tells us what we can do, how we can complain like a believer. The psalmist gives us the words so we can complain like someone who has a relationship with God. So what I want to do is look at 69. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. It's uh, it's 36 verses. We're going to look at the first 16. Uh, I encourage you to read the rest because um, there's some there's some really ugly stuff in here, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And I didn't cut it for to to edit that out. So I want you to look at that and and see what the psalmist is doing in in the rest of this psalm. But we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Psalm 69 is is called a lamentation. Like I told the children, it's a lament. And in fact, that's the most common type of psalm in the book of Psalms, depending on how you count. um, And there's different categories, different scholars have different categories. But between a third and a half of the book of Psalms are psalms of lamentation. Sometimes they're individual lamentations. I'm personally in trouble. Uh, Sometimes they are. We corporately, the people of God, uh, we are collectively in trouble. We've been uh, taken into exile in Babylon, whatever it is. So so we see both kinds, uh, uh, and and there's a number of them, and you can find them all through the book of Psalms. So we're going to look at verse 69. And it begins, um, in in your bulletin, I put a number on it, uh, verse 0 is a heading. And most of the time, if you pick up a Bible and there's a little heading there, it says, you know, the prodigal son or something like that. That heading was put there by an author in the last generation. Somebody who, who is, works for the publishing company and they said, you know, I will just give you little headings to help you find your place in the Bible. One of the neat things about the, the book of Psalms is the headings, and there are many, many of the Psalms have headings, 
actually come from before the time of Christ. Some editor way, way, way back when put these headings in, and so they don't have a number, but their little fine print up there, it says, uh, to the leader, according to lilies of David. So to the leader is probably to the worship leader, uh, uh, someone like Patrick, someone who, who uh, or Donna, somebody who who leads the group of people in their music, and it's saying what tune you should play this to, the tune of lilies. We don't know we don't know what lilies is, but uh, whatever it was, I'm sure it was a great tune. If you read the words, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing minor key. Um, uh, and then it says, of David. What does of David mean? It means, we don't know. It probably means that it was somehow associated with David, but we don't know exactly how that is. Sometimes it means it was written by David. Uh, sometimes it means it's the kind of problems that David wrestled with. And when I think about my problems, I think about David. Sometimes uh, scholars will say it's a particular category of psalm uh, relating to the music or something like that. We don't know, but it's a psalm of David, possibly written by David, probably not. So that's the heading. And it begins, Save Me, O God. Anne Lamont, the, the writer Anne Lamont, has a book uh, called, um, it's called Help, Thanks, uh, wow. And she says that those are the three categories of prayer. If you've got that covered, you're pretty much set because that, that'll take care of all your prayer life. Uh, thanks, uh, help, and wow. Um, and this is one of those help ones. So he says, save me, O God. Why should God save him? Because the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. Um, uh, it sounds like fishing in the Kenai. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. He, he's saying, he's saying, I am overwhelmed. And then he says more. He says, I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. Now, I love this because this is complaining like a believer. He's saying, I've got problems. I'm overwhelmed. And by the way, now would be a fine time for God to show up. I am weary with crying. My throat is sore. I am hoarse. No one can even hear me cry out anymore because I have been crying so long. My eyes grow dim. I've been scanning the horizon. They're sore because I'm trying not to blink because I don't want to miss what God might do. I'm looking for any sign that God is paying any attention to my problem. So this is kind of an unsubtle way that the, the psalmist is kind of reminding God, you know, now would be fine, Lord. So he says, I'm weary with my crying. And then he goes on. He still hasn't told us what his problem is. So he tells us now, starting in verse 4, he says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. So he's saying, I've got a lot of enemies, and they're piling on. They're, they're, they're treating me falsely. They're, they're, they're making up things that aren't true. But then right away in verse five, he says, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. He's saying, well, it's not that I am guilt free in this situation. I've made mistakes. Um, mistakes were made. Uh, he's saying, he's saying, yeah, God, you know, you know what the reality is. But he's saying, it's not fair. They are taking a problem and magnifying it, making it worse than, than is really the case. Um, whoever they are, they they have have made my problem worse. And so then in verse six, he says, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, 
O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. It is for your sake I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. He said, you know, God, there's more at stake here than just my reputation. Your reputation, God, is at stake because I, I am publicly identified as a believer. And so, so when I suffer, people look at you and say, uh, people look at me and they say, God doesn't take care of his friends. So again, the psalmist is kind of saying, God, you know, you need to get on this right away because your reputation is going to suffer. He says, it is for your sake I have borne reproach. And he says, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Now, we don't know if that's because they too have joined in this this uh, disapproval of whatever this person has done. Or maybe uh, they're just uh, afraid of being, you know, kind of tarred with the same brush. They don't want to, you know, they've already got the same last name and they say, let's stay as far away as we can because we don't want any part of this. Whichever it is. He says, zeal for your house. He says, um, the fact that I am so closely associated with the temple. Maybe that means he's he's a, a financier who, who donates to it. Maybe he's he actually works in the religious life of the of the temple. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I take it personally when people insult God. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. I, w- when things kind of turn south in my life, what what I try to do is to do what we're called to do: to to fast, to 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 mourn, to be, to be penitent. And and when that happened, people just mocked me. Um, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I said, "I'm going to make a public declaration of just how how sorry I am." I became a byword. People mocked me further. He says, "I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, the the town leaders who would assemble in the gate and judge important cases. The the community would." The, the, the respected elders of the community would gather in the gate. They mock me. But so do the drunkards. Every rung on the social ladder looks at me and scorns me. So what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? He says, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up and the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. The psalmist says, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to go back to the town council and tell them they've got it all wrong. I'm not going to go find those drunkards and say your song is off base. I'm going to turn to God. And, you know, we, we can almost expect this, right? You know, what would you expect somebody in the Bible to do? To turn to God. You know, we have this phrase, I'm going to give it to God. That's what he does. I'm going to give my problem to God. And I don't know how this is landing on you as you as you hear this. You may be saying, you know, what, what I said is, well, look, I don't have any enemies. This guy's kind of, you know, if I had enemies, maybe this would be important to me. But I don't have any enemies. But, you know, I started thinking about that. You know, there's a there's a, a catchword or a kind of a rule of thumb that I learned, you know, for doing pastoral counseling, and it's this: if you have imaginary conversations with people in your head, and you realize at some point that you're having more imaginary conversations than real conversations, then maybe that's what the psalmist is getting at. You know, you know the kind of conversation I'm talking about. You know, you say, "Well, she'll say this," and then I'll hit her with that. 
and then you know she's going to say this thing she always says. I hate that thing she did. And, and then I'm going to I'm going to zing in there with this. When you start having those kind of imaginary conversations, maybe that person is your enemy for the purposes of the psalm. But but I think there's more to it than that. You know, an enemy doesn't have to necessarily hate you. There, you know, you may have you may have that kind of enemy. You know, the person at work you despise can't stand being in the same meeting because you'll say something and they will undercut it. Or you'll you'll do something and they'll try to take credit for it. They're, you may have real enemies, but a lot of our enemies have no relationship with us at all. They're just people who don't mind hurting us. I don't know if you saw in the in the news uh, this week the Office of Personnel Management, the federal government's Office of Personnel Management was cracked into, and all of all of its security files going back three decades were accessed. And the particular thing they were looking at was security profiles for people who were trying to get a security clearance. So these these files range up to hundreds of pages with every intimate detail that might be used to blackmail somebody. And now they're in the hands of who knows who. So financial details, relationship details, they're all in the hands of whoever cracked into this system. Probably not a teenager who is just looking for a thrill. And so these three, four million people are exposed now to the possibility of blackmail, that somebody is going to come to them and say, I want you to do this thing. I want you to access these records. I want you to tell me the plans. Whatever it is, I don't even know all the reasons people might want to blackmail someone. But these people, they don't care what harm they do. But they're prepared to do it because they have an agenda of their own. You say, well, yeah, but I don't work for the government and I, I don't have anything to be blackmailed. You know, my life's pretty dull. I'm not that kind of person. Well, try clicking on the email that says, Hi, I'm the widow of the colonel in Nigeria. Okay, and all you need to do to get your piece of several million dollars is just give me your bank number. I mean, who has not received that email? There are people in this world, they don't hate you personally. They don't know you. They couldn't, they couldn't pick you out of a lineup. But they're perfectly content hurting you stealing from you, doing what they can to damage you because they've got their own agenda. So I think more of us have enemies maybe than we appreciate. But even then, you say, well, yeah, but, but you know, we're not supposed to have enemies, whatever. Um, I think this section of the psalm from verse 4 to verse 12 is really just an illustration. It's an illustration of what it feels like. And that's really what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, God, I'm in a mess. Save me. The waters come up to my neck. And then he says, here's what my problem is. And what I, what I love is he's exaggerating. He's not telling the truth. He's, he's not telling an objective statement of fact about what his situation is. He's going to his father and he's saying, this is where it hurts. He says, they hate me without reason. And then the very next verse, he says, okay, there are some reasons. But they hate me, and it hurts. He says, God, this is the way it feels. This is the way it lands on me. Maybe he doesn't even have any enemies. We don't know. But he's saying, that's what it feels like. God, help me. Help me, God. And so what does he do? In verse 13, he says, my prayer is to you. When when you've done everything you can... Or maybe before you've done everything you can. When the problem is beyond your solving, that's a great time to turn to God and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to dump this in God's lap. 
You know, we, we have this, this sanctimonious phrase, I'm going to give it to God. But have you ever thought what it means to just give it to God? To truly say, I'm done. I'm washing my hands. This is not going to be my problem anymore. Um, because I can't do anything. I've done what I can and it just keeps getting worse. So I'm going to give it to God. God knows what to do. God can do anything. So I love what he says. He says, at an acceptable time, O God. That's again one of those little, little darts aimed at God. You know, now would be fine. You know, whenever's good for you, Lord, I'm, I'm not doing anything right now. You can solve this right now if you want. But he knows God can solve it. If anyone can solve it, God can solve it. So he says, you know what? I'm done. He says, Lord, don't rescue me because I deserve it. Don't rescue me because I am guilt-free in this situation. He says, out of your abundant mercy, because of your steadfast love, God, because it's not that I'm perfect, it's that you're perfect. It's not that I'm great, it's that you're great. This is a big problem, Lord, and I'm asking you to solve it, not because I deserve it, but because you are a God who loves his children. So, Father, this is where it hurts This is what it feels like to me. I don't know if I could look from the outside what it would be like. I don't even know. But I know this is the way it's landing on me. And then he says, so solve this problem. Save me, Lord, because of your abundant kindness. You know, I I do wonder what it would be like if we could do that. You know, this is not me, um, but it's a lesson to me. It's, it's It's a song that is now stuck in my head. And I can turn to, and maybe I'll swap out verses 4 through 12 with what's going on, or maybe they're close enough to my experience that I can keep them in there. But I can say, God, this is what it feels like. And maybe I can once in a while actually give a problem to God instead of nursing it myself. But imagine what it would be like if we as a community of faith dealt with our problems this way. Have you ever stopped to think, this church is 40 years old. Have you ever stopped to think of 43, 44? How many problems people have prayed about in the last 45 years at this church and God has addressed, that God has solved for people? You know, how many people have just been overcome with grief? How many people have been overwhelmed with anxiety? People who've had financial problems? How many times God has solved those problems just in the life of this church? Imagine if that's the, if that's the way people saw this church as a, as a place where God was at work. Solving these kind of problems, not because we're wonderful, but because God is wonderful. Let's go out and live a life of lamentation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who listens, a God who never says, don't be such a baby. A God who is patient, who says, tell me where it hurts. And who solves problems that baffle us that overwhelm us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn to you, trusting that you will turn to us. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.